Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to the Sunridge Teaching Podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means that we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We are gathering indoors right now, socially distanced and masked for now. We'd love to have you drop in. Just check our website, sunridgechurch.org, for the latest details on times and options. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. So, um, we last week we started a, a, a new series, and I just want to like, wow, I'm not used to the new program here. The old program, that's the new program. Um, I want you to just like imagine with me for just a few minutes here what you think might be the hardest thing or the most tragic circumstances that you personally could face. Like, could you imagine that something happened in your life that forced you to immigrate to another country? Not, not because you were wanting to have fun and an experience with your children, but you were forced to go there. And imagine, coupled with that, that um, you lost your source of income. Like, you, you had no way of making money. So, it was, you're so low that you have to rely on charity of others just so that you can survive. And then connect with that, everything that goes with that, that you lose your whole sense of purpose, your 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 sense of belonging in the world and how the culture looks at you, uh, you become invisible and you, you, you realize inside that you, don't, you have no value to the world. And then add to that the death of your closest loved ones, your husband or your wife or your children. Now, if you started the book of Ruth with us last week, that all might sound really familiar. Because in the first eight sentences of this story, a woman named Naomi has lost everything of value in her life. And she's living in a time where human beings are on like a razor-thin edge of survival. And there is no social safety net. And a wave crashes through her family that drives the trajectory of their life. And the push and pull that we talked about of a famine caused them, forces them to emigrate from Bethlehem to Moab, an entirely different country, a foreign country, a, a, um, an adversarial place for her people. And then while there, all the men in her life die. Her husband dies. Her sons die, Malon and Kilion, and in the patriarchy of that day, she has no one to care for her, and she has no value. And where we're going to pick the story up now, it's just Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And when you think about it, I mean, you can, you can connect to that even in our day, but if you think about that day, pretty much the story is over. 
I mean, even people that would be reading this story at this point thinks, well, they would think like, well, what else can be done? This, this is the end of the story of Naomi. And certainly Naomi and her daughters-in-law think this, but this is actually where the story really begins. The same push and pull that sent Elimelech and Ruth to Moab now drives her back to her hometown of Bethlehem. And then we pick it up in Ruth 1, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, remember, it was the scarcity of her own land that sent her and her family to Moab in the first place, and now it appears that the situation has flipped, or at least it's gotten better. And it's good to just stop and remind ourselves that most, people, most immigrants, particularly those that are forced, the push and pull that drives them, most immigrants want to be at home. And so she's getting to return there, and Naomi and her daughters have decided that this is their best choice, maybe their only choice to survive, is to try and go back to Naomi's home in Bethlehem. And then, for some reason, Naomi waits till they're traveling on the road to address the elephant in the room or on the pathway with them, uh, as it may be. In verse 8, Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now, what's, what's going on here? She's saying, don't, don't go with me. Stay here. Go back home. They're somewhere on the road. They, maybe they're just outside of town. Maybe they're a few miles. And she's saying, the best thing that you could do is stay with your people and your home. And, of course, Naomi would know firsthand what it's like to not be home, right? And this, this is showing something about Naomi's heart to her daughters-in-law. She loves them, and she's grateful to them. And she offers this blessing of kindness, this word that we're going to talk about in kindness in the NIV is kased in the Hebrew, and we're going to spend a whole week in two weeks just talking about that word alone. But it means loyal love, and it's often used as a farewell um, in the Hebrew culture, you know, may God show you his kased, his, his loyal love. They've shown loyal love to Naomi and also to her sons, if you think about it. And she wants the same for them. And she, Naomi sees this as their best chance to find a husband, which they're going to need at this time. And at first, both Orpah and Ruth uh, insist on remaining with Naomi, she, uh, she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. So they're committing to travel with her and to stick with her. And then verse 11, Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could be your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to two to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. Now, what, what is going on here? Naomi is reasoning with them 
in this moment, that they should return. And you can see the intense emotions that are in this conversation. Her sons had married these Moabite women, which would have been forbidden religiously. And yet, one of the things that you see here is that there's strong love in this family in spite of these religious differences. And Naomi says to them, it makes no sense for you to come with me. Your best hope is to stay here because you need husbands. And she references here uh, the Leveret Law. And in your notes, this is one of the first things in your notes. Uh, It's an ancient custom in which an Israelite was to marry his brother's wife if he died without a son, so without a son that could inherit the family's land. So a man dies, there's no one to carry on his family and for that inheritance to go to. Remember, in this time, women don't count. They can't own property. And so there's this law in the Old Testament that says that the brothers have to step up. They need to step up and marry the widow. And this is going to play into the story more as we go. But under patriarchy, remember that sons and men are the gold standard. And Naomi is simply saying, I'm too old. Even if I could have a son today, you know, you couldn't marry him. That would be really weird, right? And her emotions just kind of crescendo in this intensity when she says, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. We're going to go on. Orpah then chooses to return. At this, they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and goodbye. And I want you to see here, there's no condemnation of Orpah. This is, this is like the common sense thing for her to do. It's the wise thing to do. But as we read on, but Ruth clung to her. And in verse 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And then Ruth wraps her arms around Naomi and says, stop telling me to leave. I'm not leaving. And then there's this definitive line from Ruth. If any of you have ever read Ruth before, you may have heard it. Verse 16, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back to, uh, from you. Where, I, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people and your God, my God. And then she doubles down in verse 17. She says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Here, Ruth is declaring more than just loyalty to Naomi. She is converting to Yahweh if she hasn't done so already. And she's, she's committing herself to Yahweh and to the people of Naomi's God. And she invokes this oath that says, if I ever like, you know, break this covenant, if I ever don't follow through on this, then I hope that God just takes my life right there. That's how serious she is. And at that point, that's enough for Naomi. She's not going to fight her anymore. Maybe she's just too tired fighting with her. We got to get on the road. But then they continue on to Bethlehem without Orpah. And you would hope that when they arrive there, that this would be a happy reunion for Naomi to come back to her hometown. 
But as we read, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. This is big news, right? Because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now, it's been a long time since they've seen her. And I take this to say that evidently the years have not been kind to Naomi. That hard life that she's had is showing as it would. And this is not the picture that Naomi had of her life, right? This is not the story that she was going to write for her as a little girl thinking about getting married and having a family and what life was going to be like. And straightway, Naomi just gets to the point with the women that have gathered around her, probably her friends. I picture her being kind of like that, that person who just says it like it is. It's like, let's just get it out there. Let's, she's not going to fluff it up. And she just lays it all out there and says, we might as well get this over with. And look what she says in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, if you remember last week, and I know that you guys remember every part of my messages, you listen to them over and over again. But um, the writer described Naomi's situation at one point as being left without. But here, Naomi does her own self-description. She describes her life. And I want you to see, she describes her disposition. She says, I'm bitter. Naomi means pleasant, by the way. And Mara means bitter. And this hard life has taken its toll on her personality. Like who she is. Like... Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe, maybe you. So, you know, life has like just done some things to you, and you used to be one kind of a person, and now you're different. Life can make us grow bitter. And Naomi is just outing that. And who would blame her? Then she talks about her status. She says, I'm empty. She says, I, the last time you saw me, I was full. I had a family. I had a life. I had a husband. I had sons. I had what you had, she's saying. And now she says, I have nothing, nothing of value. I have no honor in this society. Then she talks about her worldview. She says, I'm afflicted and misfortunate. It literally means that she's good for nothing. This is, she's talking about how she feels about herself. She's broken. She has the lowest view of herself, and in that society, she is only just a click above a slave, and you know a slave at least has a place to sleep. And then she talks about her faith, and what does she say? This is all God's fault. He did it. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Can you, can you feel that? You know, some scholars describe Naomi as a female Job. If you know the story of Job, he lost his wealth. 
and his family and his health all in just a very short time. And Naomi and Job actually use the same kind of language in describing what they feel in this moment, this lowest moment of their life. Job said that the Almighty has made me taste bitterness of soul. Doesn't that sound reminiscent of what Naomi is saying? But I think that Naomi's situation is even worse than Job's. I'll tell you why. Because at least Job is a man at this time. He has the potential to recover. He can start over. He can start a new family. He can start a business. And remember what his wife's advice was, right? Curse God and die. Basically commit suicide. I picture him in that moment saying, thanks, dear. But surely Naomi is thinking along the same lines. She's probably thinking about suicide. She is a post-menopausal widow in a male-dominated culture, and she's without any hope at all. That's her story, and she has no recourse. She has no next step to take. So she says, don't call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Coming home for her is not a happy reunion, it's a humiliation. And can you imagine, like all the comparisons, how this would feel for her to return home under these circumstances? As she compared her life to her friends that she left, that she was away from, they kind of time stopped, right, when she walked away. They don't have FaceTime, they don't have phones, it's like life was over and now she's coming back and time has moved and things have happened quite different from her situation. They didn't have to leave, they got to stay home. Her family was forced from home and faced famine and death. They've built a life of comfort with their people, their own people. They have homes, they have husbands, they have sons, they have stability, probably wealth. And that comparison has to be excruciating to her in this moment. These are her peers. Maybe her Hebrew school friends. They are temple companions, and they probably had young families that grew up together, and they would visit one another and come to each other's place. She and her husband, Elimelech, were probably aristocratic families, as we talked about last week. So they're like, they, they, they left with such pride, and now she returns after having been forced to a foreign place to start over. And of course, even as she left to Moab, she's filled with some kind of hope, right? We're going to go there. We're going to start over. And look how it's turned out. Do you know the Hebrew word for widow comes from a word which means unable to speak? It's like a metaphor for like to have no word no influence. That is who she is in this moment. And so it looks like it's the end of her story. But it's not. Their story isn't over. And I think for many of us, we've, we've hit these moments in our life where we think, this, this is the end of my story. We clash with these things that happen in life that we didn't ask for. We're given a diagnosis. We face challenges. Our kids experience 
the same kinds of things and we live that through them, there's struggle. There, our struggles are different today, but we still struggle. Now, next week, we're going to pick the story up from here, but let's, let's just walk through a couple of thoughts that I think uh, can reflect and relate to us today. Number one, struggle leads us to a deeper understanding of God's character, doesn't it? There are things that we learn in the struggle that we don't learn when things are perfect. And you know what? I look at this. Does God look faithful in this moment? If you're Naomi, we will see Naomi turn. But in the meantime, we need her lament. We need her doubt. There's something for us to learn from her in that. She's not demonstrating a lack of faith here, I don't think. She's just being a human being. And she's being real with her people. And she has had sorrow upon sorrow in her life. Um, I've shared with you guys uh, about my best buddy that we grew up together, Mark Trotter, that died of cancer uh, just a couple months ago. And um, his widow, Sherry, who's a college friend, they met in college, and uh, he way outkicked his coverage with her. It was like, but somehow she loved him. I don't know why. <laughs> and, uh, you know, earlier uh, in the year, she lost her dad. Her dad passed away. And then, um, then Trot died. And just the other day, she found out that her mom has terminal cancer and will die in a week, if not days. It's a sorrow upon sorrow. And in those moments when we're in that, it's like we need the Naomi's of the world. We need them to say things out loud that we're afraid to say sometimes. Like, I feel empty. I'm bitter. And I feel like God has left me. Because it's easy to fill the void with all these pious platitudes, but she doesn't. She says out loud what we've all wanted to say at one time or another. And this is what draws the audience to the story. It's not just like this perfect little story. And it's what draws us to the story, I think, as well. We need to see people who are real and express their real thoughts. They give voice to their doubt. They ask the questions. And I think too often in church, church is a place where you can't do that. And so you're not allowed to ask questions in church. You're not allowed to say, I don't like this part, or I'm struggling with this. Except for you can't say, I don't like the pastor. That's like, you can't say that. You can, but say it secretly to your friends. Be a real Christian about it. Here's what happens. The people who don't feel like they have the right answers for their questions feel like they have to leave. They feel like, well, my, my faith must not be real. Or like, I can't stay here because I have these questions. I can't work this out here. That is not how it's supposed to be. The church is not filled with perfect people. 
It's a refuge for people who have questions and often are doubters. And we have to be okay with that. And, and especially if you have um, adolescents or college-age kids and they come home and they're challenging you with things that you've always believed, and if you just shut that down, you will not be able to have that conversation with them. And I've, I've just met so many people that talk about that they left the church because they had a question and they weren't able to ask it. And I think that Ruth deconstructs that idea. There's no criticism of Naomi here. See, we prefer to get this clear and often audible voice from God for all of our questions, preferably if you give us a detailed spreadsheet of the plan that he has all worked out for us, that would be really nice. And um, sometimes we want that so badly, we, we, we try to find simple answers. And worse, sometimes we want it so badly, we find the wrong answers. You know, there's a Cindyism in our household. You know what, though? Do you guys have those? Like somebody in your family, maybe you have Cindyisms in your family, but um, we have them in ours. And uh, it's like a saying that she started. There's a few Britisms, but I don't want to repeat them here in church. But one of Cindyisms is that uh, every time there's a big trial, there's one big trial, there's thousands of individual ones. And we've seen that over and over in our life. And, you know, you see Ruth and Naomi, you think that they're, they're in the same, like, stew, right? But their struggles are different. And that's true of you and me as well. I can't help but think, like, we're, here we are sitting in the building today, and COVID has been a struggle for everybody, right? But each of us have had our own struggle. We've had our own individual trials. I know people that lost their jobs. I'm, I just stopped at a fire station uh, the other day. I think I might have mentioned to you guys before I used to be a fireman. But uh, I stopped in one of the stations and was talking uh, to the firefighters there. And you know what their problem is? They can't get a day off. So like the struggles are different. People are leaving the fire department that I worked for because they can't get a day off. They're working like 20 and 25, 24-hour shifts a month. And they're, they're mid-career, and they're saying, I quit. I can't do this. So the struggles are always different. And it, you know, I don't know. You've had your struggles. I'm not trying to suck the air out of your life. But, like, pastors have struggles, too. And nationally, this has been the hardest year for pastors that anyone can remember. And I can tell you that it's been a really hard year for me trying to figure out how to lead through this. You have pastors saying different, completely different things, right? Take off the mask and don't be afraid. Well, I'm not afraid. but um, And then we have, you know, we, we took a certain stance on, you know, we're going to wear our mask. We're going to meet outside. And it's like, and, and like, but that was our choice. We, we, we had principles that are based on that. And so that that, that came from, but like, People, people left our church. This is not, I'm not trying to be critical of them. I'm just saying, like, that's the level that it has reached. And it's like, there's pain for all of us. <coughs> Excuse me. It's been hard. It's been really hard. And I have lots of unanswered questions about what the future of the church looks like in general. And, of course, Sunridge. 
But I can tell you that I find comfort in stories like Naomi's. Not just that she had it far worse than me, but I find comfort in relearning some things that I thought that I knew. And one of the things that I've relearned this year that I'm still learning, I don't have it dialed by any means, is who God is. God's character. And who he isn't. I love King David, who, uh, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, he was a great warrior. He was a king. He knew how to make decisions. He's also a musician. And from what I can tell, he's a really good dancer. And he is so afraid when the Philistines seize him in Gath that he prays this in Psalm 56, 3. He says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Now, it's like it's easy to go, oh, yeah, that's like a nice little Bible verse. But here's a really amazing man who says, I get afraid. And when I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in you. We can learn that over and over and over again, can't we? Often the la- that's the last thing we do when we're afraid. But if we do, God will always be the hero in our story. Even if we think the story's over, he will show up. Even if you don't see him in the scenes right now. Second thing, the best love is ordinary love. And we're running a little short on time, so I'm going to try and click through this. But I want to say this, that it's like, it's easy to read the Bible and look for the heroes, the, the, like David's. But there's a lot of ordinary people in the Bible, too. We, we try to aspire to think of these great things that we'll do for God, and in the, in the meantime, we just kind of like live our normal life, and we don't sense what God is doing through us. But the best love is ordinary love. I love what Barbara Brown Taylor has said in... She's quoted in this book that I'd recommend for you, The Ministry of Ordinary Places by Shannon Martin. I mean, if, you, if you're looking for a book to read, you should read that one, and you kind of tell by the title what the book is about. But uh, Taylor writes, it's not necessary to take on the whole world at first. Just take the three square feet of earth on which you are sitting, paying close attention to everything that lives within that small estate. Simply put, we cannot love what we do not know. We cannot know what we do not see. And we cannot see anything really until we devote ourselves to the lost art of paying attention. And Ruth, the power of Ruth comes from her ordinary existence. She, she's not just ordinary, she's nobody. And yet she focuses on that three square feet of earth in her life, which encloses a person named Naomi. That's the thing that she did. And that's how God used her. When she shows up in the hometown with Naomi, she's, she's invisible. She's, just, you know, she's like the foreigner that's with Naomi. She's not even in the conversation. But what is she doing the whole time? following through on that simple promise to stand with Naomi. In fact, cling to her. And when she said, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, she meant it. 
And do you, do you realize how, <clears throat> what a difference that made in Naomi's life? Just that one person to stand with her. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That's the picture. We're just ordinary vessels that the Holy Spirit occupies. And as ordinary people, we can just love in an ordinary way. We hold something remarkable in these broken, human, mortal, sometimes creaky, sometimes not so attractive bodies. But there's something in us that's extraordinary. Ruth reminds us that God isn't looking for heroes. That spot's already filled. He's looking for people that will stand with a friend, even if that friend is wrong. He's looking for a mom that, or dad that makes breakfast for your kids or going for a walk with someone that hasn't been out or giving a kid a home or driving kids, your, your friend's kids to soccer to serve simply to hold a baby or like, you know, get down on your hands and knees with a preschooler at church to show up at your job and shine the light. Just be nice. To give regularly to your church. It's, it's the ordinary ways we love that are life-changing. And if you look at it through that lens, you know, Ruth is this simple, ordinary person that says, I'll do this thing, I'll love strongly, loyally, and it changes everything for Naomi, and then we'll see more. But what if, what if the church was just filled with Ruths? There would be millions of of us unleashing ordinary love in our families, at our place of work, in our community, just like the simple ways of loving people. I think it would have as much of an influence as we see in this story. Ruth teaches us that, teaches us that best love's ordinary love. Last, and I skipped a whole bunch of stuff, so you guys should be glad Last thing is the gospel flips our story. That's what's happened here. Last week we saw these drivers in Naomi's life and, of course, Ruth's eventually, and it makes the waves that they're paddling in, this famine and death that they faced. We all have them. We all have these drivers. We talked about it in our uh, groups on Sunday night, last Sunday night, but it would be giving the wrong impression if the way we looked at it was to say, well, that, that's just like the way it is. It's, life is futile. You know, these things happen to me and I can never escape it or rise above it. That's not the message we're sending, nor does Ruth. Did you know that there are only two books in your whole Bible that are named after women, but they tell the story of remarkable women who are employing who they are in the world? Esther, 
You can listen to that series in our archives. One of my favorite ones that I ever taught. I don't listen to it again, but um, you guys should. Esther was a Hebrew woman who marries a Gentile king. Ruth is a Gentile who marries a Hebrew man. Esther begins with a feast and ends with the death of 75,000 people. Ruth begins with a famine and ends with the birth of a son. God is never specifically mentioned in Esther, but he's mentioned 25 times in Ruth. God uses Esther to save the Jewish nation so the Messiah could be born, and God God uses Esther to do that. God uses Ruth to save a widow and perpetuate the lineage of Jesus. In that ancient culture, as you mentioned, the tendencies to to discard women without sons, yet Ruth brings women into full focus. That's the flip of the story. This is when they heard the story, this is so crazy to them that this could happen. And the gospel changes everybody's story. Not just a woman in ancient Hebrew culture. Next week, we're going to see Boaz a man of character, but he's just an ordinary guy that's going about his life every day. And like all of a sudden he becomes an important part of the story in the world. The gospel flips things. It flips our story. I'm going to have the band come up and while they do, I want to encourage you to read the gospels and then to see how many, it's just one series of flipped stories after another Uh, There's a Samaritan woman. There's a wayward child. There's a tax collector. And it flips the story of a wee little man who climbed up in a tree. And we started this message by talking about what are our greatest fears in life? Not so that we would all shrink from them, but so that we could remember that our greatest fears are no match for an even greater God whose love is loyal beyond imagination, and he changes our story. You're sitting here today because God changed your story. And you know, there's a whole world of people who think that that can't happen for them. Maybe you're sitting here today. Maybe you took a chance on church. You know, you heard a church is going to meet in a building, and you said, I want to do that. And you came, and you're thinking, yeah, but it's like, You don't know. See, but that's the thing. God does know. And he's in the business of changing lives, changing who we are from the inside out. So I don't know where you are today with God or with life or what this last year has brought you in your family, in your your place of work, or what all, all the challenges that we're facing. The gospel changes that story. God is in the redemption business, and he takes something that was broken and he makes it new. That's what God does. He flips our story, and Ruth will continue to show us that over and over again. Let's stand and sing together. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.